Dear Lord, I thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity to open up your word. Thank you for all the different avenues you give us and all the different means by which you help show us your truth. And I pray right now that you fill us with your spirit. Open our hearts up to you even as we open your word up to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, brothers and sisters, we are halfway through the book of Ephesians. I, that's, that was kind of a... If we're going to clap, clap. If you're not going to clap, don't clap. But we're halfway through the book of Ephesians. There you go. There you go. It's a book full of rich and deep teachings that have the power to transform our lives. One of the central themes of Ephesians is, is this idea of unity. Paul emphasizes that in Christ, we're all one body, united in love and purpose. He writes, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This unity isn't just a nice idea, it's the very heart of God's plan for his people. Paul urges us to make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. This means that we must actively work to maintain and strengthen our relationships with one another. We can't just simply sit back and wait for unity to happen. We have to pursue it with intentionality and effort. What does that look like in practice? Paul gives us some practical guidance. He tells us to be completely humble and gentle, to be patient, bearing with one another in love. Notice that Paul doesn't say be humble and patient or be humble and gentle. He says to be completely humble and gentle. We have to be willing to put aside our pride and our ego to truly submit to one another. We have to be patient, willing to bear with each other's faults and weaknesses. That's not easy. It, it, it requires a lot of hard work and sacrifice, but the reward is great. When we're truly united in Christ, we become a powerful force for good in this world. Become a living testimony to the love and power of God. So today, let's truly commit ourselves to be to the pursuit of unity. Let's humble ourselves before one another. Let's work to strengthen our relationships with one another. Let's trust in the power of Christ to bring us together as one body, united in love and purpose. God bless you all. I think that I think that's solid. Is that solid? I think that's good. A little little bland, a little generic, but I think that's good. I didn't I didn't I didn't write any of that. I'm not plagiarizing anybody. That was that was written by a computer AI. It's artificial intelligence. That's an algorithm that put that together. It wasn't a human. It wasn't a person. It was just a computer looking at some specific details. Hey, write a sermon about the beginning of chapter 4 in Ephesians. Go. The computer just scoured the internet, looked for pieces, and looked at the beginning of Ephesians and threw something together that its algorithm said more or less ties together. I think he did okay. It, it, it. It did okay. Cause he's not a he. It's an it, right? has no soul. has no spirit. There's no passion there. It can sound somewhat passionate, especially if you read it with some degree of passionateness. But it is interesting that if a 
soulless computer can look at the pieces of all this and look at what other people have said and look at the verses that are sitting there in Ephesians. If a, if a computer can look at that and put something like that together, and if you and I have the, the Spirit of Christ in us, well, surely we can apply it even better than the computer can, can't we? I would, I would think. Because the computer doesn't understand any of that, does it? There is a benefit to that, though, of course. There's benefits to being completely detached and not even understand the puzzle pieces you're looking at. Computer doesn't trip over ego. Computer doesn't stutter step because it's afraid of what this might imply about how it has to live. The computer just goes, this is what Paul said. So this is what I'm saying. If you haven't already done so, if you would turn with me to your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Let's pick up where we left off. Let's look at what Paul says and, and then say that. But let's do that not just because we have pieces sitting in front of us and slap it down like you're playing gin with Bible verses. Sermon. Instead, let's let the word of God permeate us and change us. Let's let it work in us. Because Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, because that's what he's been getting to this whole time, right? He's been trying to get here for weeks. He's been trying to do this. Ephesians 3, 1, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. I was starting to make a point three weeks ago. And I got egregiously interrupted by myself. I interrupted me so I couldn't make my point. It was just so exciting. I got so excited by the fact this badly hidden mystery that God loves the Gentiles. Did you know that? I didn't know that. It was just hidden in multiple verses throughout the Old Testament. It's all over the place. Paul's like, yeah, but God loved the Gentiles. By the way, that would be you and me, right? Us. God loves us and wants to show us this absolute grace, this unmerited favor, willing to die to bring us home to be with his family. Paul's like, I just got so excited I lost my place. I just went off on this. But chapter 3 is this parenthetical tangent off of the point. But if you think chapter 3 does link chapter 2's idea that, hey, you Gentiles have been brought near and the two have been made one, and in chapter 4, he says, so live at peace with one another. It just flows, doesn't it? He reached out to all of us, to you Jews, to you Gentiles. He reached out to all of us, brought us all together to be one. So why don't we live at peace with one another? Makes total sense. Chapter 3 just kind of expands on that a little bit, but that's the point he's getting at. So he says, as a prisoner for the Lord, not a prisoner of Rome. Yes, I'm currently shackled to a Roman guard. Hey, Claudius. Hi. But I'm actually a prisoner for Christ. That's why I'm here. My Lord is not Caesar. My Lord is Jesus Christ. And that's why I'm shackled, because I'm trying to share the gospel. I'm trying to share the gospel to my fellow Jews. I'm trying to share the gospel to you guys in Turkey. I'm trying to share the gospel to Claudius. Hi, Claudius. Yes. Hi, Paul. I'm trying to share the gospel to everybody, and that's why I'm here. So as a prisoner, 
shackle, shackle, shackle. On your behalf, for the Lord, I urge you, you guys who aren't currently chained to a Roman, you guys that have choices, you guys that are out there doing stuff and going, yeah, I can do my thing. I'm going to tell you, live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. And if you don't see that as one of the most intensely convicting verses in the entire Bible, you ain't reading it right. Are you ever worthy of it? Can you live in such a way that you go, well, I kind of deserve getting saved. So God saves me because I'm worthy. Retroactively, retroactively, I just, I kind of deserve it now. I've been living so good that really, when I think about my salvation, I'm like, yeah. Retroactively, I've more or less earned it. Can you? Paul goes, yeah, aim for that. But even if I never, ever, ever, ever sin again and do everything that honors God, that's just me doing what I was supposed to have been doing the whole time. That's literally the baseline, right? That's literally just square one. If I do everything right, he goes, yeah. But I want you to, to aim for living that life that's worthy of the calling that you've received that calling to become parts of God's family. Live in such a way that your life reflects, accurately reflects to everybody what it means to be a Christian. Does it? That phone call this week where you called somebody and you're like, I am so sick of these jerks that are... And Jesus went, that is exactly what I meant. Was that to a Christian teaching them how to react to conflict? Or is that phone call to a non-Christian teaching them how a Christian reacts to conflict? Paul's like, everything that you do, the lordship of every part of your life, I want that to honor Christ. Live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. Do that. I want you to retroactively, not so that you can earn it, so that you can deserve it, but I want you to live a life that reflects this. I want you to aim for living life that is worthwhile and worthy of being called Christian because you have a consistent testimony to all those around you. What is it consistently showing? I want it to consistently show Christ. Aim for that. Do that. How do you do that? Paul's like, okay, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And I think the computer did a fine job with this one. I thought the computer did good, which is half the reason I started with the computer sermon. He doesn't say, be humble and gentle. He says, be completely humble and gentle. No, no, really and for true. Even the computer who doesn't understand any of this, really, says the pieces I'm looking at say, this has to be sincere. This has to come from inside of you. It has to be complete. It has to be real. You can't go, well, I'm sort of humble. I'm one of the more humble people I know. <laughs> I'm mostly gentle. I can approximate it. Most people that know me seem to think that I am. That's the same thing as really being. It looks good on the outside. Even the computer says, no, 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 no. And we've talked about what this word gentleness means, right? There's a couple of biblical words for gentleness. But it's not about petting a kitty softly, right? It's not gentle. It's 
Put up withness. To be gentle is not to be soft. Biblically, to be gentle is, will you put up with it? Somebody did something. Will you let that roll off your back? Will you bear with one another? I'm not saying be a doormat. I'm just saying somebody sinned against you. <sighs> you go, it so bothers me. Or do you go, yeah, they shouldn't have. It's wrong, and it's always wrong, and it's always toxic. That's why Jesus died. I'm not going to let that sin and its toxicity permeate me. I'm going to let it roll off my back. And I'm going to have a thicker skin and a warmer heart. And I'm going to try to help that person not do that again. I'm going to make sure that I don't respond in sin to their response of sin. Can I, can I be gentle here? Does, is it telling that so often in these lists, when Paul talks about being humble and gentle, how often it's followed by saying, be patient and exert self-control? Do those kind of go together? I mean, we sometimes will think of it as just a list where you go, yeah, be good. Be humble, be gentle, be self-controlled, be patient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You go, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, how do you put up with? By saying, it's not all about me. I'm going to be humble here. By going, patience. I'm going to self-discipline myself so that the words don't come out my mouth that I can't ever take back. You know what I think? You know, do you? How many how many times how many times in, in conversations have one before you say that you can't take that word back? Think before you say that. You want to accuse me of something? Accuse me, but you're not going to be able to undo it. So stop and think. Self-control. Do that completely. Be patient. Do that completely. Are they being fair? Are they being righteous? No. Oh, okay. So what's your response? Can you let that run off your back? Not say, it's okay, let them do it. No, I didn't say let them do it. But the yuckiness of it, can you let that run off your back or does that permeate you now? Do you let it infect you? What did Paul say to the Romans? Even if people are doing evil to you, Paul said in Romans 12, live in harmony with one another. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. So they're doing bad, right? If somebody's doing something bad, live in harmony with them. Don't repay evil for evil. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Not the people doing bad things. Yeah. They might not be at peace with you. Can you be at peace with them? I'm not saying you always have to go hug everybody. But as far as it's up to you, can you say, I'm letting the toxicity of this run off my back, and I want to love you well. I want to love you well. I'm horribly toxic. Yes. And I may make sure that I, there's a gap so that I don't get infected, but I'm going to love you well. Can I be at peace with you without being unfair? Can I, can I put up with them lovingly, patiently, completely? Or is it just a sham? I can't, I can't help but relate this to another verse in 1 Corinthians, but I can't just quote it. I could quote the thing from Romans. I could do that. I can't quote the thing from 1 Corinthians without giving you a trigger warning. 
because you got to do trigger warnings these days. And, and, and this is the most offensive verse in the entire Bible. It's, to modern American ears, this is the most offensive verse, and it really might bother you. To some people, it's physically painful. And I just, I, don't listen, mute, just don't listen for a little bit. I, I, I'll just, I'll quote it. I'm, I'm really sorry. 1 Corinthians 6, 7, Paul says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Isn't that better? Wouldn't you rather be hurt than hurt someone else? Isn't that better? And the modern mindset goes, Ew! How dare you suggest that? It's a trigger warning. I warned you. Hopefully you muted it. I warned you guys. Paul is chiding the Corinthians. He's like, you guys are taking brothers and sisters to court instead of dealing with civil cases within the family of God. You have a little dispute with each other. You're disagreeing with each other. Can't, can't you guys deal with that? And this isn't about hiding crimes. If somebody's committed a crime, that's something you've got to deal with on a, on a, on a criminal level. But this is about competence and wisdom. And he's like, shouldn't you be able to do that in-house? Shouldn't you be able to, as a family, deal with family issues? Do you really require a secular judge or a secular court to give secular rulings about civil cases between brothers and sisters? Seriously? Is it possible that there's no one among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? Really? That can't be the case, he says. That can't be right. Jesus himself told us how to deal with conflict, right? If I have a problem with Sarah, I should talk to Sarah. Or Mark. I can talk to Mark about my problems with Sarah, right? No, I should talk to Sarah. I shouldn't talk to Mark about my problems with Sarah. If this doesn't go well, me talking to Sarah, then maybe I bring Mark in and I say, Mark, would you do me a favor? Could you kind of arbitrate between us, be a disinterested, loving third partner to help me figure out how to do this? Don't take my side. Don't take her side. Take Christ's side as we try to work through this. If that doesn't work and we can't do something, maybe we pull Bill in because he's he's an elder, and Bill can go, all right, I have authority. You know, so, okay, fine, fine, fine. Now we can do that. And if that still doesn't work, well, we take it from there. Doesn't Jesus himself say to do it that way? Paul's like, why are you jumping to taking this court case to a, to a, to a judge from outside? The very fact that you have lawsuits between you and amongst you means you've already completely defeated already. You've already screwed this up. But why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be cheated? Because you do this in front of unbelievers. Again, he's not talking about airing dirty laundry. He's like, this is, this is your embassy. This is your mission field. These are the people you're trying to show them that you're something different. We come from a deeper, richer place. We have a deep, loving family. And you're, I'm dragging Kelvin to to a law court and having a secular judge decide between us as Christian brothers? What kind of embassy are you showing people? What kind of difference are we showing people? Seriously? He even says in 1 Corinthians, I'm telling you all this to shame you. I'm trying to shame you. Seriously? Wouldn't it be better? (laughs) Wouldn't it be better to just get cheated? Wouldn't it be better to just be wronged than to fall into this 
selfishness that doesn't care about harming other people, harming your witness to other people, harming the gospel message. Because by golly, you should get what you deserve. And you're not getting the stuff that you deserve in this place, in this place. Kelvin owes me $35.17. And if I don't get my $35.17, I'm going to destroy my witness in front of people, drag the, the body of Christ in front of people, or maybe we just never talk about it in front of the judge. Maybe we just set that part of the lordship of Christ to the side, and we don't tell anybody that we're Christians. Because Paul would love that, right? There's somebody typing down every word that I say in public in an official state capacity. The last thing I would ever want to do is mention Jesus, right? That's Paul in a nutshell. He's like, guys, you don't want to set your witness to the side. Wouldn't you rather be wronged? And to the modern mindset, we say, no, no, absolutely not. It's not better to be wronged or potentially wrong others. Which beyond being, you know, the word is sin, beyond being a sin, it's logically untenable, isn't it? Because if I justify wronging somebody because I got wronged, and if I've been wronged, then I get to wrong somebody else, at least potentially. Well, if I've wronged Nikki, then she's now wronged, which means that she has the justification to wrong Terry. So all three of us are now wronged, which means that we have the, we have the opportunity to wrong Marshall. Now he's been wronged, so he can... Doesn't this perpetuate the toxicity? And isn't that what we see all over the place? Isn't that what we're doing hand over fist throughout everything nowadays? Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated, he said. Instead, you yourselves cheat. You guys do wrong. And you do this to your brothers in front of your mission field. And you keep justifying it, saying, I just did it to keep from being wrong. Again, it's not about being a doormat. It's about saying, wait, am I selflessly wise or am I self-absorbedly clever? Wise judgment is not just a gift. It's a responsibility for us. But in an effort to avoid being victimized, we're okay with victimizing others. In order to keep from being attacked, we might need to attack others. In order to avoid people being prejudiced against us, sometimes it's okay for us to be prejudiced against them. Yes? Right? You know how they are. I'm sorry, have you ever uttered that sentence? You know how they are. They're like this. I don't care who your they is. Haven't you just justified prejudice? Isn't that the algorithm you're using? Can't a computer just churn out whole messages based on an algorithm that it's using and plugging in different variables? Isn't that what we do all the time? We need to change that, change that, change that. Vindictive judgmentalism, division, harming others to avoid being harmed is a sin. We're supposed to use good judgment. Paul's argument is, guys, you're going to judge angels. You should be able to judge this in-house. Jesus says, in the same way you judge others, you're going to be judged. With the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. I want you to use good judgment. I don't want you to be judgy. I don't want you to be judgmental. I just want you to have wise judgment. How do you do that? Paul says, be completely humble, gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, not grumbling, but because you truly care about one another. I need to stop and say, this isn't about me getting what I want. This is about me loving you well. But she kicked me in the shins. 
that can never be unkicked. Even if I kick her back, I still got a bruise. Now we both do. So what should my response be? Somebody's patently unfair to me. What should my response be? Does that response honor Christ? That means you have to start by examining yourself. You have to start by disciplining yourself to figure out where your heart is before you ever try to be self-righteous against somebody else. Make every effort, Paul says, to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And that's the core of all this. We have this bond of peace. We have this unity of the Spirit. Just keep it. Just do that. You have that. Just do that. You don't need to create that. I need to create some sense of unity. I, I have that. We're part of the same body. We need to have some sort of unity in the Spirit. We have that. It's been given to us already. It is not, it's not their responsibility. It's yours. It is your personal responsibility to live at peace with the people around you. Not theirs, yours. But don't sweat it because I just told them the same thing. But if everybody runs on the assumption, it's my responsibility. And if I think that and Wendy thinks that, then both of us think it's you know, our own responsibility to be healthy. Hint, that makes our relationship a little healthier, doesn't it? As long as I go, it's your responsibility to... Now, I've made the kind of division Paul's talking about not doing. And why? He says, because there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What word does he use seven times in one sentence? One, 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 Already. I don't need to make us one. Jesus did that on the cross. I don't need to give us one spirit. We already have one. And I'm sorry the computer is wrong on this one. This isn't just so that we can be a powerful force of good in this world. Yeah, do that. Be a powerful force of good. Let Christ be a powerful force of good through you. But Paul's argument is, be one because you are already. That's all you are is one. Live like you are actually what you already are. Live like the Christian you claim to already be. If you're harboring snide comments or bitterness or self-righteousness or higher esteem for yourself than others, it's not that you need to find unity. It's that you have consciously broken it. It's, you've broken what you already had. You're not living what you've actually got. You're removing yourself from that unity or you're trying to, in point of practice, rip them from that unity that Christ died on the cross to give all of us. You're at odds with the will of God and there's a word for that. I don't want to sin. I don't want to do that. Paul doesn't want us to sin. And he's writing a letter to churches. He's not writing a letter to non-Christians. He's writing a letter to Christians saying, stop doing this. Work on not doing this. 
I'm talking to people I love, people I think have the Spirit of Christ in them, the Spirit that makes us one. Don't do what is so easy for us to do. Because it's not like any of us is better than other people are, essentially. He says, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. He knows what he's doing. It's not like, well, of course, I mean, Mark's a deacon, so of course he has more. No. It's not that some of us are more important, some of us are better. It's just that some of us are bricks, some of us are beams, some of us are windows. Because you need all those materials to build a house, right? It's just different people, different gifts. Help me out here. Which is more important to the security of your house? Having good locks on your door or having that door attached to a wall? (laughs) Or having that wall actually being closed with a roof over it? Or is it yes? If there are no doors, your house is so secure you can't get in. If there's a door but no walls, you walk around the door. If there's a wall and a door and no roof, you just climb over. You need all of this to work. You need all of this. And this is why he says, it says, when he ascended on high after his resurrection, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men, quoting from Psalm. And Paul says in his little commentary on Psalm, what does it mean that he ascended except that he also first descended down here to the lower earthly regions? He's like, Even Psalms tacitly points to the fact that Jesus came from heaven in the first place. Yes, he came down here to be with us. Maybe even he's talking about he went to the grave. But he started in heaven. And what does it mean that he descended except that he then went back to heaven? You're talking about Jesus who knows everything about what it means to be a human being in this place. And knows everything about what it means to be in God's will in heaven. He's a both-and kind of savior. There's no part of your life that you go, I'm not sure that he understands what I'm going through, and there's no part where you say, I'm not sure he can have the power to get me through this. Paul says, he who descended down here to us is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Do you have any question in your mind, any worry about whether or not Christ understands what you need or has the ability to fulfill that need. He's filling the whole universe. He understands all of this. And he's the one who made us all one family, one people, one body, one church. He brought us all dramatically different people together and to be one people together. He knows what he's doing. And he's giving gifts because he knows what he's doing. It was he, it was Jesus, this filling the whole universe Jesus, who gave some to be apostles sent out to the nations. Some to be prophets, breathing the very words of God. Some to be evangelists, sharing the good news with everyone. Some to be pastors and teachers, shepherds, discipling and maturing God's flock of sheep. It's not because some of those people are more important than others. I don't ever want you to think, well, I mean, Paul's obviously more important to Jesus because I mean, he wrote most of the New Testament. He's an apostle. And he's a pastor. And he's really cool. He's up here. I'm down here. He's up here. Y'all just sheep. And there's some days you're doing it better and there's some days you're doing it worse. Y'all just sheep. How about we do it better? How about we do it better? But God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grow all of you together in, in different ways, different ones being gifted in different ways. 
All of those roles that he lists here are crucial. A roof doesn't work if there's no wall holding it up. A wall doesn't do any good if there's no roof keeping people out. I get it. But they're all important. It's not that some of them are more important than others. Some people are more important than others. That's the kind of division we want to get around. And why were these gifts given? So that some people get better honor, right? Some people have higher seats. Some people... It's to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. It's to prepare God's people so that they do things to build up the body. Jesus didn't put pastors like me in place to do the ministry of the church. Every once in a while, people will summarize it like that, and technically that's incorrect. I am not a pastor so that I can do the ministry of the church. I'm a pastor to equip all of us so that we do the ministry of the church. The moment you think, oh, the elders do the ministry, oh, the deacons do the ministry of the church, you're forgetting how this is supposed to work. The whole point of this is so that all of us in unity do the ministry of the church together. Why? So that all of us in unity can grow together and can have a greater, deeper unity and a greater, deeper appreciation for Christ, greater, deeper understanding of the things that you can't naturally understand. Can I apply the whole letter? All of this is so that all of us do all of it and we do it together. To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith. And not in the spirit, because technically you've already got that. Not in the family, because technically you've already got that. Nope, I just need you to actually be unified in what you're actually believing and doing. That's the part where you guys got to work on this. Till we all reach the unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, which, if I remember includes filling the entire universe at present, yes? The whole point of all of this is to honor Christ. And Paul is saying we do that by stepping out, all of us stepping out in ministry all the time, with all of us, in whatever levels that God is calling us to step out in together until we all become one in Christ in every way, which is the whole point. And I can't reach unity in Christ we can't reach unity in Christ together if some of us are divisive. We can't reach unity in Christ together if some of us neglect to minister. We can't reach unity in Christ if some of us hold ourselves or our gifts or our calling apart or away or above the rest of us. So long as we put this person on a pedestal so that we don't have to be, so long as we put that person in the gutter so that we feel taller, so long as we say, well, I'm not that side of the room so that this side of the room is better, so long as we, so long as we say, well, I'm not a minister. I've got a job. Kevin just works Sunday mornings. Um, so long as we're doing that, well, we're, we're not unified in what we're doing, are we? We're not doing what we're supposed to be. I'm just, I'm just the prompter. That's all I'm doing. I'm an actor with you, but I'm just the prompter helping all of us to do our roles together. A 
whole point of this is so that we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. We become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we'll no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, the uh, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. We talked about this in Sunday school last week. Do we want to get lost in doctrinal conflict arguing how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? No. So then doctrine doesn't matter. It doesn't matter about having sound doctrine and knowing what we believe. Yes, it does. But to be able to balance that, to be able to say, I want to make sure that I am not just a child who is basing my life and how I live on whatever sounds best to my gut today. Today I don't like the idea that there's a hell, so I bet there's not. It's bad theology. Even if you want to argue conclusions, the theological process itself was badly done. Can't base that on how you feel or base it on how persuasive sounding this particular charismatic speaker is or not. It doesn't work like that. Beloved, you're meant to grow and you can't do it if all you do is lap up mother's milk all the time. You're meant to grow and I can't do that for you and you shouldn't want me to. You're meant to grow and you do that by moving from milk to baby food to stuff that you can chew, eventually ultimately to good meaty steaks, but you have to grow. Too many presidents and pastors and pundits and news media and insta-face twits and well-meaning friends and family, self-aggrandizing cult leaders don't want you to chew your own food. They want to do it for you. Sometimes because they love you and they think that's helpful and it isn't. Sometimes because they don't love you and they want you to make sure that you're doing what they want you to do. But beloved, you're meant to grow. You were meant to chew your own food. You're meant to become not only just mature Christians, but to grow into the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Diversity is great. Disunity is bad. Appreciating one's differences with one another is great. Disharmony is bad. Questioning everything like a good Berean, that's healthy. Distrust is bad. Disunity, disharmony, distrust, they're toxic. They, they don't just stunt your growth because we're all connected. They stunt everybody's growth. We all need to be built together. We all need to be my door connected to your wall, connected to her roof. It's, it's all of us working together, being built together so that we grow together into who we were meant to be, who we were sculpted to be, who we were chosen to be before the creation of the world. I don't want to get lost on the sidelines. I don't want to be lost in grumblings. I don't want to be lost in just doing baby things. I want to grow. Instead, speaking truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. And, and, we, and, we, and we love that verse. And people will quote that verse. But almost invariably, when they do, they will focus exclusively on the speaking truth in love part, right? Isn't that what most people will focus on? If they quote this verse, I'm forever hearing people going, we need to speak the truth in love. Sometimes they mean, we need to speak the truth in love. 
it's all about telling somebody what they think is actually righteously true. A lot of times it's, no, we need to make sure that we are speaking truth. We don't remain silent, but we need to do it with love in our hearts. And that's great. Don't get me wrong. Perfect application of the verse. It's awesome. Not what the point of the verse is. Because Paul's point is not speaking truth in love. Paul's point is growing up. We need to get to the point where we're speaking truth in love because we're growing up. I need you to grow up. You're going to grow. I want you to grow. I want you to become mature. I want everybody to become mature. Speak truth in love as we grow up into him. The point is growing up. Speaking truth in love. Great. Good. Do that. But part of how we do that is not just by being babies all alone, but being strong enough that we lean on one another. We speak the truth of God to one another. We're iron sharpening iron together. We're worshiping together. We're discipling together. We're fellowshipping together. You're never just out there alone. We're never just at the mercy of those who would deceive us with their cleverness, but we're speaking to one another and we're doing it out of genuine love because we're a family. Because we're one church, one body, one household. We go, right. So I heard, womp, 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 speaking the truth in love, womp, 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 womp. Like, grow up, grow up, grow up. One family, one family, one family. Speak truth in love because you're one family and you're growing up and I want them to grow up and I'm going to grow up and we're going to grow up together as one family. Womp, 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 speaking truth in love, womp, 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 womp. One, 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 one family, one family, one family, one family. Every part of every part of what Paul has been saying since the beginning of this letter to all the churches has been about how much the God of truth loves you. Even the whole predestination thing was out of love. So as God's children bearing God's name in God's one holy family, how could we speak anything other than the truth? And how could we speak it in anything other than love? Of course we would do that. And to the degree to which we don't do that at any time, we're severing ourselves from what we already are. And we don't want to do that. And even my computer saw that. And it doesn't understand any of this. You have the Spirit of Christ in you. Do you see this? You hear Paul's heart here. Dad, speaking the truth and love, rule in all things, grow up into him who's the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love. As each part does its work, I can't even get through my, it's like a human body thing. I can't even get through my metaphor before I go, in love. I'm lifting weights. And your muscles grow in love. No. But he's like, "Eh, my metaphor is a limited metaphor. Even this has to be. You're connected to each other in love. Can I specify love more than I do? My fingers won't do a whole lot of good no matter what I do if I get my arm amputated. My fingers will just sit there flopping. They don't do anything. We all need to be parts of the body of Christ and actively involved and actively growing and actively supporting every other part in its growth. There are no spectators in Christ. There are ministers fulfilling their calling and ministers who aren't. 
if that makes you feel guilty, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. That's just the way Paul expresses it. Y'all have to be connected to y'all. We can't sit on the sidelines. It just doesn't work like that. So I tell you this, and I insist on this in the Lord, Paul says. All of this is leading up to this. I, I tell you this, and, and I'm commanding it. I insist on this. We'll pick that up next week. We've run out of time. Point is, all of this is leading up to this application point that he makes next week. So we'll do that. In the meantime, how do we apply what we've been talking about this week? How do we sit there and go, wait, search me, oh Lord. See if there's any hidden way in me. Am I, am I, is there some distrust, disunity, disharmony? Is there something toxic in me that I've been harboring and saying, well, but Lord, help me not do that. Is there some growing up that I need to be doing? Is there somebody in my life that needs my help in growing up? Is there, is there some way that I need to connect myself Lord, help me to do this, not just correctively, but because I desire to grow. Not just because I'm like, well, I'm doing it wrong, but because I desire to be healthy. Not just because I'm, I'm, I want to be who God sculpted me to be. I want that. I want my arm, I want my hand to have blood, and I want my arm to give it blood and to take blood from, I, I want it to work. I want that. Lord, help me want that. Because I'm already attached. Help me attach right and well and healthily. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you that you you love us and that you desire for us to be, to be connected, but not just for our welfare, not just that we do good in this world, but because, because you, you bought us adoption into one family through one salvation and one sacrifice and one day on one cross by one Savior. And there's one name under heaven by which we must be saved. Lord, it is a message that goes contrary to so much of what this world teaches us. Help us to lovingly be ambassadors of that every day in everything. In Jesus' name, amen.